0: As I mentioned, we have uh, changed up the order of the service a little bit. Um, we've moved the word up uh, so that it becomes uh, an opening uh, for an anticipation of, of the word and the elements represented here in front of you symbolically. Unfortunately, we still can't yet share these things in common, though I do look forward to the day when we can do that. But you do have the elements there in your possession. And so, um, With a little bit of a twist, I wanted to open the Scriptures to you and connect some big dots uh, in the Scriptures, primarily centered around the Lord's Supper. So my words will be less, and the readings from Scripture will be a little bit more. And so I want to connect some of these things to you and show how the Lord serves us through the giving of this communion table, and how the early church followed the example of Jesus Christ. Some quite well, others not so much, which then leads us to the question about whether or not we are taking seriously the words of Jesus for us here on Staten Island, as well as 1st century Corinth and 1st century Rome. So I want to draw your attention this morning uh, so that our focus is on Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the one who is among us. Those of you who have been participating in the Revelation study on Wednesdays, know that the first chapter of the book of Revelation is given over to an explanation of the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ and how it is that he is the head of the church, the one who literally walks among us and in his right hand holds not only the messengers to the churches, but also the lampstands, which are the churches themselves. He is our Lord. And I was struck by how that similar language comes up in Luke chapter 22 this morning in the initiation of the Lord's uh, Supper. Uh, last week, you recall, in Romans chapter 12, and nine, verses 9 to 13, we centered on uh, unhypocritical love, and the, the phrase that we use right out of the Scriptures was that we are to let love be genuine and the passage ended with with a, a command to contribute to the needs materially physically monetarily to the needs of the saints uh, among us and uh, i applauded new York baptist church for the incredible job that she so regularly does in giving to those who are in need Uh, when the need is made known. Well done, church, and keep up that good work. And it also exhorted us to seek to show, to, to literally pursue hospitality. I talked briefly about that, and hospitality is often something that I get a little bit of pushback on because... Uh, usually the pushbacks sound something like, well, that was the first century. This is the 21st century, and they didn't have hotels in the first century. And so so people who were passing through needed the hospitality of those, particularly Christians, uh, to take them in. Otherwise, they were exposed to the elements. That's okay as far as it goes, but it remains a standing command for you and for me today. And I've been struck week after week after week recently, as in preparation of the 12th chapter of the Book of Romans, how... Uh, biblical hospitality and the welcoming of the stranger, whether, whether it's in your own home or whether it's out into the park or uh, the local Dunkin' Donuts for a cup of coffee, how the welcoming of the stranger, the one who creates so much fear in our country nowadays, it can go so far down the road to heal the divide that we have between various people groups in our own country. And you've heard me for weeks now exhort you to be thinking more biblically about things than politically about us. There are more options than two parties. In fact, for the Christian, we are, we are really of neither party. We're the party of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and we're to seek first his kingdom and his coming glory and how that manifests itself in our world today. So this morning, by coming to communion, we experience the hospitality of God. I want to put that category in your mind uh, to give thought to a different angle of thinking about the table where God in Christ Jesus is the one who is hosting us. He's the one who is serving us. He's the one who welcomes us, who were once strangers to the kingdom, but now, because of the work of Jesus Christ, have been adopted from strangers to saints, children filled with the Holy Spirit, by which we can cry, Abba, Father. It's an incredible and precious privilege that we have in Christ Jesus. Our focus is on the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst and among us this morning, and our text will highlight a very simple flow I want to just give you three words so that you see how this moves. It begins, it continues, and it ends somewhere. It's very straightforward and logical. And each of those three movements will contain a significant passage from the Scriptures that will link these things together. We'll see that um, this, this uh, communion begins with Jesus Christ establishing the Lord's Supper as a sign of the kingdom. In Luke chapter 22, from there, we ask ourselves, does that ministry continue? And indeed, it does. It continues with loving service. And we'll see how Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as well as Romans chapter 12. We must ask ourselves, where is this all going? We talk about that often. What's the goal of the Christian life? What's the goal of the proclamation? The goal in all things is the glory of God. I mean, Paul's going to write to the Corinthians, so whatever it is that you do, whether you eat or whether you drink do it all to the glory of God. Fascinatingly enough, immediately after that verse in 1 Corinthians 10:31, he goes into a fairly long teaching on uh, the Lord's Supper, which we'll look at in just a moment. So it begins with Jesus establishing the Lord's Supper. It continues with loving service through the churches in the first century and 21st century, and that it all ends in the glory of God, which we'll see Paul bringing it to in Romans chapter 15. Very straightforward this morning, it'll only take me a few minutes, and I want you to hear the Word of God read over you and how it is that these things hang together at this table, Too often it's a tack-on. It's the last thing that we do. It's a build-up. But now I want to make sure it stays in front of us throughout each part of this morning's teaching. Let's begin with Jesus in Luke chapter 22, where I ask you to turn with me if you would. When it comes to establishing the Lord's Supper, the gospel writers uh, have their accounts. It's that important, and understandably so. In Luke chapter 22, we have Luke's uh, version of the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. And Luke's going to highlight two critical, crucial teachings of Jesus. The gospel writers have their unique emphases. Uh, one, uh, two things that Luke wants us to be sure that we see here is, first, that Jesus ties the meal to his kingdom and to the fulfillment of his new covenant. So I want to be sure we have these categories in front of you. When you come to the table, I'm sure for decades you've heard about the body being represented by the loaf and the the blood of Jesus Christ being represented by the cup, and rightfully so. That's straight up biblical. But there's even more to it than that. Jesus is going to intentionally tie this Passover meal, which he's transforming to what we now call the Lord's Supper, And in so doing, he ties it very strongly to the kingdom and to what it means to be a new covenant believer as its fulfillment. You'll hear that in just a second as I read a a, a significant portion of Luke 22. Secondly, Luke emphasizes for us that Jesus not only ties the meal to his kingdom and to fulfillment, of the new covenant, but Jesus also teaches us that one of the chief characteristics of new covenant believers is loving service, as he himself models. So as you've sat under my teaching over the years, you know that we will regularly use the paradigm of looking back, thanksgiving to the Lord, looking presently as well. How does this sustain us as this means of grace? And looking forward, because Jesus himself is going to say, in so often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, and you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a futuristic aspect of this table as well. In fact, the future in Christ has been brought forward so that you and I live simultaneously in the present and the future, with a view to what the end is like. It's a profound teaching. So those are the two emphases that Luke wants us to be sure we hear from Jesus as we read the following portion from the Gospel according to Luke. With me, please, Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. We're going to read a lengthy portion of this, and I just want to read it so that you can hear it. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. This is the story of how this came about, and how rich and deep our history is. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed Prepare it there. They went, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Second time. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. They began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Meal with Jesus, and now the debate about who's going to be the greatest. He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Here it is now. But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, "'But now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me.' He was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, "'Look, Lord, here are two swords.' And he said to them, "'It is enough.'" Christian faith is an historical faith with deep roots, as we've learned in Judaism. Exodus 12, part of our history, contains the story of the Passover, the, great, the greatest Old Testament story of God's redemption, of his rescue of his people from that iron-smelting furnace known as Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The sight of blood on the doorpost, as you know, caused the avenging angel to pass over the Israelite house and thereby rescuing that household from destruction, as the Lord had declared these plagues to a hard-hearted Pharaoh. Today, in fulfillment of the Passover, we have the shed blood of Jesus Christ not on our doorposts, but over our own hearts. Covers our sin that we too might be rescued. Establishes the new covenant, a promise that was made centuries earlier through Jeremiah and which the writer to the book of Hebrews would pick up and say this in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 6. But as it is, Christ has ordained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Hebrews 8 and verse 8, quoting Jeremiah 31. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Notice how now how the writer of Hebrews is bringing forward this prophetic word, To our day and age, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God. They shall be my people and they shall not teach one another his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. This is the backdrop of our rich history as we come to this table. It has as its backdrop the Passover and the shedding of blood by which the people of God were rescued. So as you take these elements this morning, emblematic as they are, remind yourself that you've been rescued from sin and death because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That in and of itself is a message. The question now is, what happened after the meal was over? what did the apostles do what did the founding churches do with this message of jesus christ particularly his call to loving service so jesus begins here with the lord's supper and the early church continues with loving service let's look at 1 corinthians chapter 11 with me please turn to 1 corinthians chapter 11 we ask the question how did the early followers of jesus do in carrying out this call to loving service. Well, Corinth reminds us that they did not do such a good job, and particularly around the communion table where love should have been exhibited and straightforward. They display a lack of discernment toward the body of Christ, toward one another. This is how the story goes, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. A very fascinating statement by Paul. that times there are ne- necessary divisions in the church to root out error and to show where truth is the case. So we pray that that doesn't have to happen. When one, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. First Corinthians 11, verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Far from loving attitude, the rich because they did not have to work as much as the poor, arrived at the house church early, and the party was on, and they did not wait for their brothers and sisters. Instead of humility, it was humiliating. For I receive from the Lord, Paul teaching now, what I also de- delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, verse 25, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup, here it is again, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, here's the teaching that follows. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We're to wait for one another This genuine love is to be on display, modeled by Jesus himself. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the rest of the world so then my brothers when you come together to eat wait for one another anyone is hungry let him eat at home so that when you come together it will not be for judgment about other things i will give directions when i come to come to the table as paul teaches is to receive the blessing of the lord He reminds the Corinthians that they, too, are under the blood that established the new covenant. Certainly those early Jewish believers would have recalled the Exodus and would have recalled the Passover. And as with new covenant privileges come new covenant responsibilities. Responsibilities to discern the body of Christ. Do I have something against another member of the body of Christ? If so, I need to get that right. Am I harboring ill will toward one another? This is what discerning the body of Christ is all about. That it's outward looking and reminding that you're part, you're reminding yourself that you're part of something larger than simply yourself. Something as practical as just waiting for one another. Sometimes it's an act of love to wait for one another. Well, Corinth didn't give us much to be encouraged by with regard to their following of Jesus. Rome does a little bit better, as we've heard recently in Romans chapter 12. I just read for you the first few verses that we took up last week to remind you of love needing to be genuine, and then some of the characteristics of that genuine love. Let love be genuine, Paul writes in Romans twelve nine. How do I do that? by abhorring what is evil, by holding fast to what is good, by loving one another with brotherly affection and outdoing one another and showing honor, not to be slothful and to be instead zealous, fervent in the Holy Spirit, serving the Lord. Therefore, we rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation and constant in prayer. And as we started by contributing to the needs of the saints and showing hospitality, well, God willing, in the weeks to come, we'll take up the back half of this passage in Romans chapter 12, and we'll see how Paul moves not only from within the congregation, but he's going to move us out of the congregation as well and begin to teach us that that mark of genuine love in the world is a love for enemies. It's not taking vengeance into one's own hand. Imagine if Hollywood adopted that ethic, half of its industry would go away. You can sit here and probably in five minutes name me five movies that are built on revenge. Don't, stay, don't spend too long thinking about us. Paul makes clear that loving service is both internal and external. Corinth, Rome. You know I have to ask the question, how about Staten Island? How about the churches that meet on Staten Island? Are they continuing with loving service? as modeled for us by Jesus Christ himself? It's not a hypothetical question. It's one that we really need to wrestle with, not only as a church, but as a collective of churches. And why is it that the church doesn't look much different from the world in which we live? In fact, more people are asking of me now what my politics are than what my theology is. That's a bridge too far if my political positions are gonna be determinative of whether or not you come here, regardless of what I may or may not believe about the beautiful word of God and the beautiful one to whom it points, let us ask ourselves this question, not only today, but in the weeks to come as well. Are we indeed keeping with the serving in love that our Lord has modeled for us and began right here at this table in the meal? So Jesus began, the churches continue even to this very day. Here's how it ends, very simply, as we prepare our hearts for the taking of the elements. If these are the characteristics of the disciples of Jesus, of new covenant believers, of the communion of saints that are to give themselves to loving service, whether we eat or drink, we are to do it all to the glory of God. So to come to the table is to receive the blessings of the kingdom, to receive the grace that God gives to us in order to love him and to submit to his authority and his guidance and live in pursuit first of his kingdom in the world. which The kingdom which by design leads to a life of loving service modeled after the king. That's the title of the teaching this morning. I am among you as one who serves. Jesus Christ himself said that. I am among you as one who serves. And as Paul unpacks in grand detail in Philippians chapter 2, we ask ourselves the same question. Are we in that same flow? Are we in that stream that all ends in the glory of God? Ask yourself that question. Has following Christ recently cost you anything? Has Has service unto him caused you hardship of any sort? Here's how Paul summarizes it, and this is the last passage we'll read. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. What a great verse. 15.5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together, here it is, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Romans fifteen seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so we come full circle. Jesus is the one who displays hospitality when we share communion with one another. And the scriptures bring it back full circle to remind us that what has been written in this book has been written for our encouragement, for our strengthening, for our hope, for those moments when we're down. Where do we go? To the word of God, because that's where our encouragement comes. And it's there where we find our hope. And where does Paul want it all to end? That together we may with one voice glorify our God who is in heaven the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's the therefore. Therefore, we are to welcome one another. As we are welcomed, so too we must welcome one another. And in so doing, glorify our Father who is in heaven. For the glory of God, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Think how revolutionary that single verse is. You've been welcomed. You, as a stranger have been invited in, and by faith have received Christ, so that now you are in him, and now having received God's welcome, it's now to turn back to the world and to welcome others into that same space. It's transformative. Think about the people that you struggle with right now. Think about the people groups that are difficult for you to think for you, for you that are difficult for you to be thinking about, and God tells you to go to them and to welcome them, because there was nothing lovely in you, there was n- nothing worthy in me that drew God to to me in the first place. I was unlovely, unlovely. I was unkind, sin stained, and hell bent. And it's in that state, just like you, that he came to you. And so worked in your heart to say yes to the effective gospel call in your life. How could it possibly be that you and I will draw a line and say, this far, but not that far? Especially in this context, where there was infighting, where there was these groups called the weak and the strong where there was legalism, and where there were lines that were drawn and said, I can't fellowship with you because you don't. I'm going to argue, and by the time we get to Romans 14 and 15, that that's the central theme of the book. Paul's unpacking of all this glorious theology is not so that we would have our own systematics in our pocket. But so that our theology would be so good, we would be well aware of the fact that there ought not to be anything that divides us. Think about it. Think about the things that are dividing us. This Churches are divided about whether or not they should be wearing masks. Churches are divided about whether or not they should be meeting. I mean, dividing. I mean, people are leaving. Can you imagine? after reading these magnificent passages, and after seeing how these things get connected, the things that divide, I can't imagine our Savior is pleased. And yet, and yet, He's in our midst to serve us. And so is the gospel call in our own lives. Romans 15 it's a magnificent chapter. And that seventh verse, it ought to be on the walls of your home. Therefore, and look back as to what the therefore is Therefore, Look back. Therefore, as you have been welcomed by God, ought we to welcome one another as well? It's essentially what was going on at the table. Strangers invited. Not to convert them, because this is not a converting ordinance. Baptism doesn't save you. The Lord's Supper doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But he's given us this to remember, that we were once strangers, and we've been invited in. And now we go out inviting others in. This is how it comes full circle when Jesus is the object of our affections. With the hope of which Paul speaks, and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we strive to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore welcome one another in Christ as we have been welcomed to this table I am not Jesus, but I stand in his place as his representative, and I invite you to this table. I invite you to this means of grace where he is present in a profound way. Our our, our theology is not Roman Catholic, so we, we don't insist on this being transformed in some way to the actual body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that that's what the Scriptures teach, but we do ourselves a tremendous disservice I believe if we allow the pendulum to swing so far the other way that it ends up meaning nothing. It's more than just merely symbols. It's an ordinance that Christ himself has given his church. It's a symbol of love that ought to send us out in love. And so, as much as I passionately would love to break this bread and move it around, we can't. In the meantime, we do what we can do. But I wanted you to see these elements, this one loaf, which he took that night and he broke it. He broke it, he took a piece of it himself, and he gave thanks. And then he put it on the plate, and he moved the plate around. He said, take a piece of this. It's one loaf. This is why I'm doing this for you, and this is why I want you to see this. This is one loaf, symbolizing our unity, the harmony which you and I are to possess, such that with one voice we may glorify our Father in heaven. And after the supper, he did the same thing, and he took the cup. Part of a Passover meal, there would have been four cups, third cup, the cup of blessing, and he blessed it, sipped it, and he passed it along and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's transformative in a single sentence out of the mouth of the master transforms the sacrificial system of the Old Testament now fulfilled in the singular sacrifice that was sitting there eating with them. Communion is not something tacked on. Communion is central to our faith. It doesn't replace the gospel. But tell me, it certainly represents it well. Here is Jesus Christ, sacrificed, bloodshed for the forgiveness of our sins. In him, united, harmonious, one people, with the law written on our hearts. Just as Jeremiah prophesied centuries before Jesus arrived. I would love for you to still your hearts and minds together with me. Taking up the communion elements, allow us a moment or to two of silence for personal reflection. I will lead you in the taking of that wafer and of that juice in just a moment before Brother John returns to us. Let us humble ourselves before him in silent prayer.